The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Don Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss the latest business headlines and get brilliant and free advice from the boardroom. We're also joined this morning by Nicholas Muirhead, Joint Managing Director of the Scottish Leather Group, and Stuart Patrick, Chief Executive of Glasgow's Chamber of Commerce. And as always, if you want free business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, simply email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. So gentlemen, last week we talked about impressive speeches and leadership. Nicola Sturgeon took centre stage at the SNP virtual conference uh, on Monday. From a business perspective, did that message resonate with you, Tom? Um, no, um, is the short answer, Donald. Um, <laughs> listen, I've always had a problem with the current government and its interactions with business. Um, and how are we going to pay for all the brilliant services that Scotland need and deserve? The only way we pay for it is through the taxes we pay. And that needs a really flourishing business sector. And there is so little talked about how we're going to pay for it and so much talked about all the things they're going to give us for nothing. But as we all know in this show, there's nothing for nothing. So I think we've got to get real, Donald. What about you, Willie? Are you impressed? Well, I think um, obviously the announcement about the £20 is great news for the people who really need it. It's all, it's Again, where does it come from? You know, I think it was in the small print, but we see we're going to have to make cuts elsewhere. But I think Tom is right. You know, what can business do to help? I think this question, quite simply, is power taxes, right? Generate wealth and get taxes paid. Obviously, the tax increases that we've had over, a, a, you know, a number of years now, hopefully that is helping towards the £20. But that's certainly what business's contribution is, is to help pay more taxes so we can help with social services. Well, the SNP, uh, while in government, have been trying to tackle inequality and poverty. As you mentioned, there's a doubling of the child payment uh, to £20 a week from April. What more can and should businesses do to help tackle inequality and poverty? Or is it not their responsibility, Tom? Well, no, I I think it is um, a responsibility. I, I think, you know, if we go back to the argument during the Thatcher years of Milton Freeman saying the one and only reason to be in business is to maximise um, returns for shareholders and maximise profits. I, I actually don't agree with that. We've got a saying in their foundation that the best social policy ever invented is a decent paying job. So I come at it and I applaud the £20 um child payment absolutely applaud that that is that's fantastic um but what i i think businesses can do is go on with their businesses to grow their businesses employ people pay their taxes and that's what that's what makes the money go round you know that's what makes the world go round that's what pays for the civil society of scotland absolutely Will Well, that's the reason why this has been chosen, because it's hard not to applaud. Right, so have a big announcement around £20. 
that everyone has to agree with is a good idea, and that's that's a great, you know, apart from obviously it being a big, big benefit, the people who are making these announcements hope it's a big benefit from them. You know, look what I'm doing. And I think, really, going back to the question about what can business do, I think, um, you know, I agree with Tom that what we can do is, is try and create jobs so that actually people don't need the £20. And then on top of that, that the taxes that we pay help towards paying the £20 that the people need. But there's no doubt, you know, with what's going on at the moment with inflation and everything else. I mean, £20 won't cover it. You know, people, other people have been calling for £40, but the, the sad reality is is that you've got to balance the books and it would be interesting to find out, you know, are we going to have all the lights out in parks at night now because we you know we've got to find £20? Well, how do we create more jobs or decent-paying jobs, as you said, Tom, in the midst of a pandemic? Yeah, so I was, I was at the finals of the Scottish Edge this week and... Um, Actually, we all worried a wee bit um, at the time when the pandemic hit, oh, was this going to affect the business birth rate? You know, was people going to be put off? But I had a wee sneaking feeling that this is the time for entrepreneurs and it was our biggest ever um, Scottish Edge and we invested £1.5 million into start-up and scale-up Scottish businesses and that's the biggest ever amount we've ever invested in, in one night. And thanks to people like Willie and Susan, Chris Vanderkill, James Watt, um, Kevin Doran, who put up, um, along with ourselves, over a million pounds to help these businesses. And um, what I said in my, in my speech this week was the money was one thing, and of course it's helpful, but the secret sauce of Scottish Edge is actually the support, the support both given by Evelyn and Stephen and the team who run Scottish Edge, but also the peer-to-peer support. Everybody in Gogerburn this week wanted their fellow entrepreneur to succeed. And that was that was really heartwarming to see. And therefore, new connections were made entrepreneur to entrepreneur, support growing businesses in Scotland. I actually don't see it working as well anywhere else in the world and it's something I'm really proud of. And you should be proud too, Willie, with your involvement. Yeah, delighted. And again, I think it answers your last question. This is what business can do. So, you know, something like The Edge where business where business people are giving something back to help start up businesses. I've got no doubt that all the people who are made awards last night, you know, across the board, that in five or six years' time, you'll see there'll be hundreds of jobs created from that. And hopefully that'll be hundreds of people that don't need, you know, a handout anymore. You know, and, and I, I think, as, as Tom says, uh, you know, a hand up is better than a hand out. And I think that that's what The Edge does. And again, I totally agree with Tom you know the the Scottish Edge is not a overnight success. This is Thomas. This is twenty years in the making. It's the child of the entrepreneurial exchange of you know the entrepreneurial sp- all of these things put together. But what the Edge has done is it's sustained. It's fantastic. The government's been a big big part of it. Um, you know the proceeds of crime money. You know go, the contribution they've had over the years. And now business guys like myself, Tom, other people that Tom has mentioned, getting in behind us. Scotland has one of the best conveyor belts now for for budding entrepreneurs than any country in the world. 
No, it's a fantastic success story. Tom, are you able to share some of the winners um, of the funding and the types of um, initiatives that they're looking at? Sure. I, I also say thanks to Sir Brian Souter. Brian put his hand in his pocket as well. And along with Royal Bank of Scotland and the Scottish Government, Scottish Enterprise. So this is joined up thinking. So this is this is what can happen when we collaborate. And um, John Swinney spoke this, this week as well at the Scottish Edge final. And, you know, John says it's one of his best ministerial decisions getting out the way and putting it into kind of private hands and taking it out of government hands. So, you know, I really think when we do collaborate, we get a better um, outcome. So there was um, a business called Organ-like, <laughs> which has developed a hyper-realistic organ models for surgical training. And when the guys come up to get their prize, they were all dressed in the scrubs, um, and they they received over a hundred thousand um, pounds. There was a a single malt whiskey, um, Mashy Brick. There was a a distillery up in North Uist. Um So there was so many businesses, so many different types of businesses, and then of course there's the young age for younger um, people getting into business and that's always a brilliant category as well so I was really encouraged by the breadth of the businesses and the age of the entrepreneurs that were bringing the businesses forward so it was a fantastic night and I'm I'm so proud to be involved really? So Tom that was smart investing a distillery a malt whiskey and then give people who can get invest in people that can get you a new liver I think that's smart that's, that's what I call cross-fertile investing but, that's uh, called vertical yeah. integration yes man. yeah but, but I would I would just say Tom for what we've been trying to promote in the programme over the last few months maybe the last year is about how government can get more involved with business they've got a template the Scottish Edge is it Right, so just take that to the next level and get involved with people at the next level the exact same way you are with the edge and the, the, the country will be much, much better for it. Yeah, so, so I mean, once once people win an edge prize, um, then Ewan Hunter, who's the chief executive of our foundation, he came up with Scale Up Scotland, which was to, to take these businesses that can really move the economic dial, who are really going to employ people, and Willie, you spoke at an event for us to these entrepreneurs a couple week. of weeks ago. Yeah, last week, yeah. How did you get on? Yeah, I thought the people were very impressive. It was a small group, which you can imagine it's a scale-up group. But uh, listening to them, I found it very informative, some of the things that they're, that they're doing. But I, I think that um, this is the way. So what, what you, and mostly you with the team that you're, you know, you're working with, is that you're making sure that there's no cogs fall off of this conveyor belt, right? So right from start-up, you know, to, to scale up, the whole networking is there, the help is there, the financial help is there. I don't think there's ever been a time in history where people starting businesses could get handouts into six figures where you don't have to put your house on the line. 
I mean, these these are given as, as you know, some will be given as grants, some will be given as loans, but at least the people are not worried at night that they're going to lose their house if the things don't work out. I, I, I don't know of anywhere else. In fact, I mean, I'm going to get my guys to look at it. I think Scotland, this is where Scotland is a shining light, and, and especially in for for budding entrepreneurs. Yeah, I, I actually said that in, in the few words that I said, Willie, and I said, look, Scotland's a brilliant place to start and grow your business and um, we should encourage more. So if any listeners are um, thinking about it, go to the Scottish Edge website. If you've got a business and it's really scaling up, go to scaleupscotland.com. These are, these are there for you to help you grow your business and to help Scotland flourish. That's, 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 that's why we do it. Well, talking of uh, economic success, apparently British economic growth is set to overtake China. Is this a great opportunity or should we be worried about a faltering Chinese economy, Tom? <laughs> well, um, it's amazing what you can take from figures, Donald. Indeed. <laughs> and, and, when, and, and, when, and when you take them, and when you use them. I was a bit surprised um, by this. <laughs> yes. Um, so for from everything that I've read, and I've visited China, not a lot, but I get quite interested in China a few years ago. And um, it was clear to me that China is going to be the world's biggest economy. They're just arguing when it's going to happen. They're not even arguing if it's going to happen. So China is so important to the world in terms of its economy. So if it catches cold, the whole world catches cold. Don't be too carried away with them comparing Chinese growth and British growth, Donald. (laughs) Willie? I'm going to be controversial here. Come on then. I don't think China is going to get there when people are saying they're going to get there. I think there's a big change of attitude across the world to China. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I think that uh, I think other places in, in the Middle East and the Far East, sixty percent of all the stuff for bathrooms, which all that now comes from, you know, uh, from the Middle East, right? No, Ras Al Khan. So everywhere you see rack on a piece of, you know, uh, toiletware or whatever, it's all coming from. So there's there's big big changes going on, and there's people dominating different bits of the world, and I think the whole supply chain problem that's that's occurring and the whole, especially the microchip problem that's coming, a lot of people are seeking alternatives to China. So Willie, do you think that's because they now see China more of a threat economically than an opportunity? I think when people have delved into really about how cheap they thought that they were buying something and they looked at everything that went with it, paying up front, free on board, all of that stuff, 60 days your cash is away. I know I'm not going to name them, but I know big retailers that, that done tests, that they were buying slippers and things like that and then worked out that there was a fraction more expensive to get them done in the States. So I think there's a bit more of that going on at the moment. Well, keeping the theme going of economic growth, why is it that Scotland still fails to keep pace with the rest of the UK? Tom? Huh, well... I I think we've just said it in the last 10 minutes, (laughs) they don't get engaged with business. (laughs) There's a $64 billion question. I mean, Scotland's economy has undergone some, some major transformational changes in the past couple of years. I mean, North Sea Oil, which was, you know, so important to us, is less important and seems to be not important to the current government. 
that's a major change that's happened in Scotland. And um, we have got to come up with the new businesses to replace the jobs that are going to be lost in the North Sea. And this transition from fossil fuels to renewables, you know, this is my argument about the Campbell field. You can't just shut it off overnight. We still have demand. And if we don't fulfil that demand from a Scottish field, we've got to import the fossil fuels from somewhere else. And therefore, the transition over to renewables is the key word. Not let's shut it tomorrow. Really? Yeah, I would be interested just to hear from the government. I, I can quote you all the things that they are anti. So, that, you know, at the moment, fact, they're anti, you know, fossil fuels. They are anti-nuclear. Um, so I'd just love to know what the plan is, what we're going to be working on. But the interesting thing is, is that if we are successful and start to, you know, re reduce the fossil fuel usage, the, the, the short-term game will be, Oil will be $150 a barrel very, very soon, right? And maybe more. So that short-term lift until we run out, I says, will, will certainly help. But I would I would be keen to find out what the plan is. You know, it's okay knowing what you don't want to use, but I'd like to see that we... I mean, when it comes to utility, when it comes to energy, you really have to have a long-term plan, right? And I think that we, we have to start talking about it right now. What is it? Well, hopefully we'll get a minister to come on the show and explain exactly um, how they are going to move forward. The latest COVID variant is dominating the headlines. Tom, how worried should we be? Well, the honest answer to that is I don't know. And no one else knows either because it's too early to, to have any decent data to base your um, forecasts on. You know, I've been asking people who understand this and every one of them said, look, we just don't have the data yet. There's some early indications that it's a bit milder. So if people get it, it's not as deadly as the Delta variant. But everybody I've spoke to said, hang on, we need to get hard data. And then from the data, we make projections and that's how we make decisions. So there's been a knee-jerk on this and it kind of struck me that perhaps governments, um, and I'm not talking about any specific governments, but just governments in general were maybe too slow at the beginning of the pandemic and now when a new variant comes out, they're thinking, right, we're not going to get caught out again. So the pendulum swung perhaps too far. But again, I have sympathy, Donald, because no one knows. And is there a right and wrong answer? How do we get the balance right? This is this is difficult stuff. Difficult stuff indeed, Willie. I would have to say, honestly, that when I see the facts from this week, right, which are the one fact is it's milder, right? And the small amount of people, right, that have that have it at the moment. I have to ask myself, when I see the reaction, does somebody know something that we don't? <laughs> Seriously. Does somebody, I mean, there's complete... Well, a lot of people know plenty we don't. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, on release to this, Tom, the, 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 the panic, you know, does, there's no correlation between that and what we know has happened with this new variant. You've had people tell you, I think we've got nine cases in Scotland, 
right? So they're telling us straight away it's 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 mild. I think that might be up at fourteen now or whatever, right? The 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 people who have been given us the vaccine say that easy in a hundred days you would have a you know you you could change it and so it's not so no one in the in the clinical side is saying there's anything to panic about but politicians are rushing out to make statements and I'm just I'm bewildered by the whole thing this week. Well, Nicola asked the UK government for reinstatement of furlough cash, basically anticipating maybe a further lockdown in the hospitality trade. Firstly, was Boris too quick to dismiss that as an option? And secondly, can the hospitality trade cope with another lockdown, particularly over the festive period? This is people playing politics. This is to get Boris to say no. Nicola, Nicola knew that was the answer, right? But what it mean I want to be first to say it, right? This is what's happening here. And how could you, based on the small amount of cases, the first thing you want to say is let's bring back furlough, right? It'd be interesting if he says, OK, you can have furlough, but you need to find the money yourselves. That'd be interesting. <laughs> Tom, your view? Um, what Willie said. <laughs> <laughs> Can't believe you two are agreeing on something. <laughs> I don't think, well, I think he was sidestepping that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, the two of you like to have a wee wager now and then. Um, uh-huh. But it just brings me out in the, the government papers are released this week revealing plans in 2005 which were to turn Ravenscraig into the Las Vegas of Scotland. Was that a missed opportunity? And as Tony Blair described, the worst form of puritanism, <laughs> if I say that correctly, because that's a very difficult one to say on a Sunday morning. Um, who wants to go with that? Uh, well, 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 I'm, I'm probably, I'm, yeah, I've been to Las Vegas maybe a few more times than Tom, I would say. <laughs> as, as someone, I have to say, as someone who has enjoyed gambling, I, I think that would be the last thing we would need. You know, I think at the moment, actually, to be fair, there's, there's too much hype on gambling and and people who really can't afford that always see it as a way out and they're trying to, you know, go in and make up for the shortfall of, of the money that you need for a month. And, and I just think that, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that maybe way back in 2005 they decided it was not a, a good idea. And I remember, you'll remember, Tom, someone, you know, Trevor Hemmings had the same idea for Blackpool. Yes, and actually uh-huh. got it approved. Gordon Brown approved it, and then when they looked into the costs and the money and what it, you know, I don't think we need another uh, Sun City in Lanarkshire. <laughs> well, to- or Sin-, Sin City, as some people call it. <laughs> Sin City. Oh, well, Tom, how do you revitalise areas that have suffered a downturn, particularly where employment's been dominated by a single industrial sector? Yeah, well, I've, I've only been to Vegas once and I and I stayed with Marion and the kids in the only hotel in Vegas without any gambling in it, the Four Seasons. <laughs> and um, I've never been back. So I don't know too much about gambling. I, I gamble enough in my business. So, um, but obviously Scotland's near history was one of nationalised industries, you know, steelmaking, shipbuilding, coal mining. And there's hardly any of it left. You know, where I'm from, the coal mines, the communities were ripped apart when they closed. I wasn't popular really where I came from because um, I thought that the mines probably had to close. But Margaret Thatcher could have did it with more of a heart than she did. She was very brutal the way it was done. But it probably had to be done over time. So how do you revitalise it? Listen, I, I've only got one answer. It's 
It's entrepreneurs coming up with the new ideas because if you look to government to come up with business ideas, that doesn't work. So you've got to just say, encourage your entrepreneurial base and they will find the answers, Donald. Indeed, Willie. I think just on Ayrshire specifically, you know, I drive about Ayrshire a lot and I have done over years. I've always seen that as a, as a magical place where we could do much more for farming, much more for growing you no know, food. You know, and I think, again, back to this self-sufficiency, planting trees and, you know, and getting timber. I think Ayrshire's got a lot to offer. Well, talking uh, about Ayrshire, uh, one of the things it was famous for is Butlins. And of course, Butlins is up for sale. Does it bring back any happy memories? And is the concept still relevant today, Tom? <laughs> I think you went to the rival ones, not Butlins. Well, I can't remember I did, the name so of them, was it? I, I never went to, well, I went to Butlins at Air actually, but only as a day visitor because it was close by. But I stayed at Pontins in Pontins. And that was the more down market Butlins, if that was possible. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that was my first holiday away from my mum and dad. And uh, I was, oh goodness, I must have been 14. But I remember something about Drambuie Shandies in the bar. But that's about all I remember. But it's unbelievable that Butlins, you know, Blackstone, one of the world's biggest private equity firms, um, bought into Butlins, invested and now they're going to try and sell it on the back of the staycation boom. So um, is it relevant? Yeah, it's, it's relevant because the customers are paying to go there. And um, that's that's why it's relevant. And Blackstone, yeah, good on them. It looks as if they're going to make a great return on their money. Willie? Here's my one story about <laughs> Butlins and Air Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was about 19 or something, I can't remember. Anyway, me and my friend, we were right into snooker in the day and uh, there was a big snooker tournament on down in the air. What we used to do in the winter was they would try and come up with an idea, you know, you have something on in the camp that could attract people and so they did this big uh, Scottish snooker event, right? And this was at a time when Alex Higgins was his real bad boy. He was at his best being a bad boy, right? Yep. And uh, he was down there trying to pick up a bit of money and uh, he found out he was barred. <laughs> he was barred, right? From Butland. Uh, from Butland. He'd been barred. Something happened the, the, the year before, right? Something happened, whatever. Anyway, me and my, f my friend knew someone who knew Alex, and we had the job of sneaking Alex into <laughs> Butlins in the back of my friend's Capri in the boot. <laughs> so so we had the world champion snooker player in the boot of our car sneaking oh, him in. Oh, and it's, it's one of those ones as well. I kept saying, and when we get him in, like, no one's going to recognise him. <laughs> That's a brilliant story. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Nicholas Muirhead and David Archibald, joint managing directors of the Scottish Leather Group, and Glasgow's Chief Executive for the Chamber of Commerce, Stuart Patrick. Don't forget, if you want to join the boardroom, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Inspiring advice for Scottish business. Welcome back, as we are joined by the Chief Executive of Glasgow's Chamber of Commerce, Stuart Patrick. 
If you have any questions you want read out in the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, don't forget you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterNockey. Welcome back, Stuart. I think there's plenty to talk about. Thank you very much. Uh, well, <clears throat> when I was last on the show, it was four weeks before COP26, so I wanted to give you some Glasgow reflections now that the circus has packed up and moved on to COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. Glasgow took a fair amount of criticism before the event about cleanliness and the bin strike, potential rail strike, and the extent of the security-related traffic disruption. But after a couple of bumpy days at the beginning due to weather and the registration queues, which were the UN's responsibility, the conference itself was delivered very smoothly. I would argue that the Scottish Events Campus and the Science Centre showed just how capable Glasgow now is at holding even the biggest, most complex events, and no matter how challenging the circumstances, Both these assets deserve funding support for their next growth phases. Going into COP26, uh, international awareness of Glasgow as a business city was not as high as we need it to be to support trade and investment. After COP, there will be hardly a senior business person in the world that doesn't know where Glasgow is uh, and the role it has played in tackling climate change. There are intangible benefits in having the city's name attached, not just to the final Glasgow Climate Pact itself, but also to some of the side agreements. The two that caught my eye were the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney brokered with 450 global financial institutions committed to deploying £95 trillion of investment funds with Net Zero in mind. Having 450 investing institutions using Glasgow's name must be an asset we can develop further. Perhaps we can encourage them back to the city every so often collectively to monitor their progress. Glasgow Breakthroughs was the second agreement between over 40 countries, including China and the United States, on accelerating the development and deployment of clean technologies in power, road transport, steel and hydrogen. Any opportunity to have Glasgow's name associated with innovative technologies and engineering solutions is right up our alley. And I shouldn't overlook the Clyde Bank Declaration, with 22 countries signing up to the establishment of green shipping corridors. We can sometimes forget how significant Glasgow's ship management industry is, one of Europe's largest, if not the largest, cluster of ships under management. So this is an agreement with very direct relevance to our city's business community. The Chamber chose to throw itself into the conference in several ways. Uh, We delivered in partnership with the Scottish Government our biggest ever trade mission, involving over 170 delegates representing 80 companies from 15 countries, including Germany, Norway and Indonesia. And we plan to follow up the connections we made with return visits next year. City of Glasgow College and Scottish Leather Group went out of their way to help make that a genuine success. We also ran a full-day conference on sustainable fashion at Glasgow Caledonian University with school pupils and students as the culmination of work under the My Climate Path initiative. My Climate Path is designed to connect schools and industry so our young people are helped to see the choices they need to make to build careers that focus on tackling climate change. Over 2,500 youngsters and 90 businesses have so far been involved. 
And with Scottish Water's help, we ran a further nine events to help connect Chamber members with visiting leaders, uh, including the Prince of Wales and his Sustainable Markets Initiative, over 30 mayors from some of the biggest cities in the world, Pekka Lundmark, the CEO of Nokia, and Greta Farimo, the Executive Director of United Nations Operations. It was Greta Farimo that explained one feature where the United Nations thought COP26 differed from its predecessors. Namely, the business community turned up in force for the first time and it demonstrated a commitment to change that sits alongside the progress national governments made towards the 1.5 degree target. Now we turn to the hard part, delivering on those commitments. Glasgow has its strategy for net zero by 2030 and its green print for investment with the 10 projects that we believe are important for achieving that goal. Turning those aspirations into delivery demands an unusual speed, so perhaps we should learn from the pressure it took to get the COP26 conference itself on the ground in the face of a pandemic. And I can't finish without a brief mention of Omicron. Both the UK and Scottish governments have been fairly restrained in their reaction as we wait to hear more about Omicron's properties. But the damage to our city centre, to our airport and to our wider travel industry remains critical. We've been calling on Kate Forbes to recognise that in her budget with at least an extension of business rates relief into 2023. Do you think Kate will listen then, Stuart? I think there's a good chance that uh, she will. Obviously, she's got Rishi Sunak's comparison to uh, to draw upon. He made his commitment to rates relief uh, for a full year. Um, so I think, and that goes into 2023. So I think there is an opportunity there for, for uh, Kate Forbes to respond. And she's certainly been hearing that message from a number of uh, sector representatives, uh, particularly for hospitality, for retail, uh, and for the accommodation sector, and particularly... Uh, worried about hotels um, where, although COP gave them a, a nice boost in November, um, their occupancy rates have dropped pretty remarkably and I'm afraid Omicron is just going to make that worse for the next few months. Although we've not to cancel our Christmas parties, according to Boris. Well, I think that's fair enough. I think one of the things we learned from COP, I hope, was that um, lateral flow testing actually did seem to make a difference to the um, to the experience. It was a relatively straightforward thing to do and everyone was doing it and we haven't seen a, a spike uh, following COP26. So perhaps uh, that is indeed the route we should be going down. More lateral flow testing and get out there and um, live a normal life. Well, I think that's a great point. You know, I think that that was, it was an experiment, you know, bringing the largest crowd probably together in, in the UK since, you know, the last two years and there was no spike. You know, so people were careful, know what they're doing, and hopefully that, you know, if we do the same way Omicron and we're a wee bit more guarded, people are wearing masks a bit more, hopefully that this will pass without us having to bring in some of the measures that we're bringing that obviously has affected business, you know, drastically uh, in the last couple of years. That's exactly what we think at the, at the Chamber. I know there were some concern before COP26 that it was going to be a super spreading event. Uh, it was almost guaranteed to be a super spreading event. But I think with all the measures that were, that were taken, masks were worn. You could see that was uh, very prominent and the lateral flow testing was checked. So uh, on, on the basis of that, I think that is the way, certainly looks like one of the ways forward. Yeah, but is it more about clarity in that message? Because I, you can go to different venues. I went to COP and you're, I'm testing every day lateral flow tests. And then you go to an event and I say, I've got my lateral flow test. And they said, no, I just want to see, see that you've been double jabbed. I'm going, but double jab doesn't mean you can't have COVID. 
Well, I'm, 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 I'm not that keen on the idea that you, you know, actually make it uh, a requirement. I think we're, we're looking at the extent to which the public recognise that it's actually helping them as much as it's helping uh, others that you get yourself tested before you go to a, a major uh, event. I'm not sure I would want the government saying it was an, a requirement. Stuart, I was, I was discussing with um, Willie about, I've been spending a bit of time in um, Manchester recently and it's a very vibrant business community and it's it's reflected in its town centre. The hospitality sector seemed to be really vibrant. And then I, I had a night out in Glasgow and to be honest, it was all a bit flat. And I just wonder what role the likes of Andy Burnham has played in Manchester's renaissance, if you want to call it that. Do you think that could help Glasgow or what? what's the other big ideas that can put Glasgow back where it belongs? Um, uh, certainly, whether I would put the uh, the credit for Manchester's success uh, at the feet of Andy Burnham, I'm not sure because, to be fair, Manchester's been working on this for a couple of decades, actually. So there's it's more likely the Howard Bernsteins and Richard Leases that have been... Stringer. Yeah, they've, yeah. they've been in play for, for a couple of, you know, 20-odd years right. that have really made the difference. And they, they made Manchester incredibly business-friendly. They absolutely focused on attracting investment into the city. OK, there's a bit of debate about whether the quality of that investment always met the standards you'd like, but in general, the, the, the private sector, particularly the development community, saw Manchester as a really strong opportunity I think Manchester also made a very big deal about uh, its knowledge economy. They uh, they built on the back of the opportunities that come out of the university. They merged their universities into one in Manchester. I think in Glasgow, um, there's there's no doubt that Glasgow's uh, city centre to me. It, it does have a lot of the vitality that Manchester has. It's just been suppressed at the moment. With uh, we have a much more constrained approach in in Scotland. Uh, pre-Omicron, uh, to working from home. That was something that was beginning to lift uh, at some pace. And you could see that in the footfall stats between Manchester, Leeds and Glasgow. And Glasgow was getting stuck around about the two-thirds of the footfall coming back uh, from the February 2020 level, whereas Manchester and Leeds and Birmingham were shooting up into the high 70s. And that's that's really the, the heart of why the city looks a lot more vibrant uh, uh, at the moment. Yeah, Tom, and the thing that we've been harping on about, Manchester is the perfect example. What you had there was a group of people who got themselves into powerful positions, but were all from business. Yeah. Bernstein, Stringer. But what they did more than anything was they basically declared UDI. They didn't care what London was saying. And what they did was they took a long, long time, as, as Stuart said, to focus on their strengths and then build on them. So they looked at the landmass that they had and they tried to do deals with developers. I mean, Manchester for the last 12 years has been called the city of tall cranes. Every time you go there, I mean, there's there's two million pound apartments being built in Manchester. Yeah. You know, 12 years ago, you could have built a, you bought that apartment for 200 grand. Yeah. Right. And so that what they've done is they've done a fantastic job. But but um, sure is right. This 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 the the foundation for this was laid down a long time ago. But I think what that is, it's a great example for us. You know, if we were going to steal an idea. Manchester is what we would like to copy. And, you know, if, you know, I know the, the leader of Glasgow said part of the whole COP thing that, you know, 30 billion investment over the next, right? But what the people don't know is that's inward investment. That's not money that the local council or the government's got. So 
I think, sure, on the back of COP, and I think it has been a success, that the sad thing would be is if we just stopped doing anything about it and we didn't build on it. So I'd, I'd like to see that there was a, you know, post-COP uh, team put together that's really running with the baton. You know, where are we with trying to innovate in construction and everything else? And I think this is a huge opportunity for us. So lessons from Manchester then, Stuart, and hopefully some festive cheer ahead. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Thank and you. have a good Christmas when it comes. Thank if you. you're allowed to say that now, we're in December. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Stuart. Now in the latest of our brilliant series in Great Scots, we tell the story of Lee's macaroons. It was 1931 when John Justice Lee's, a grocer's son from Coatbridge, stumbled upon the creation of the Lee's Macaroon Bar. He'd been trying to develop a smooth chocolate fondant bar in the premises above his father's shop in Newland Street. He was unsuccessful in his attempts, so as an experiment, he covered a bar in coconut. This was to become the first ever Lee's Macaroon Bar that has now become a sweet Scottish favourite. In the early days of Lee's, other products manufactured by the company included tea cakes and snowballs, before confectionery bars such as tablet, fudge and coconut ice bars were added to the range. In 1982, Lee's set up Heather Cameron Foods with a joint venture partner, thus expanding their product range to include meringues. Seven years later, Lee's bought out the partner to fully own Heather Cameron. Trading was very difficult in the late 80s, and Lee's posted record losses in 1990 when it was then sold to Northumbrian Fine Foods in March 1991. In 1993, the company returned to independent Scottish ownership and began to implement a series of initiatives that will return the company back to profitability. Lee's operated out of two factories based in Coatbridge, one making Heather Cameron meringues and the other snowballs, tea cakes and confectionery bars. In August 1998, the company moved into new premises, still in Coatbridge, a new 82,000 square foot purpose-built factory where all products in the range are now manufactured. Lee's is an important employer in the local area and around 200 people are employed in the Lee's factory. The company continues to grow its business and sales have increased every year since the turn of the century. The development of new Lee's products and the introduction of existing products into new customers is key to the ongoing development of the Lee's business in both the UK and export markets. Since its inception, Lee's has truly established itself as a family favourite in households across Scotland. As the saying goes, Lee's Lee's more if you please. Great Scots on the Go Radio Business Show. Lee's Lee's more if you please. I do remember the old jingle. Willie, can you sing that? Oh, definitely. Get down and bended knees. That was the next one. Uh, I, I've got to say, I have to um, blame Lee's for being a 38 waist and a trouser today. You know, uh, one of uh, all my favourites are made in that factory. Tell you a wee story about it, about Lee's, and when they opened their, their new factory in 1992. In, in 1991, I was building the new headquarters down at Shawfield in Glasgow. And it was just a, a small 4,000 square foot unit, but it was brand new. And my cousin, who was doing the build at the time, said to me, look, you've got enough land here to build two, you know, for expansion or going forward. And uh, building the, the one building was costing us £90,000. And we had enough money then without borrowing to finish that building. We were we didn't want any debt, so we said, we'll build one. So I said to Brian, let me think about it to see what we're doing. So um, 
I was thinking about it over the weekend and I went down to the site to see Brian in the, in the Monday and I said to him, look, Brian, we've thought about it, we've discussed it, Susan, and uh, we're not going to... So I totally I put the foundations in for two. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I says, okay, fair enough. So we're having to borrow about £35,000 because he, he, he explained to us it would be much, much cheaper to build the two then than it would be in the future. So anyway, so... We're, as we're getting the other building built and I'm looking forward to going home and saying, says, right, we need to get debt to, to build these buildings. I got a phone call from a company who were doing uh, a refurb up at the Collins's publisher's factory up in uh, uh, Cathedral Street. And you'll not believe this, this big company had uh, rented the building from Phillips and Holland, you know, and uh, anyway, they spent... £250,000 putting in brand new air conditioning units and they had this huge plant outside. And when they went to hand the building back, Philip said to the people who at Collins, we want the building back the way it was. <laughs> right. So they wanted the £250,000 of brand new air taken out. Taken out. Taken out. So I got a phone call from the guy doing the, the demolition and he said to me, Willie, we've got this huge plant that's outside. It's a big air conditioning plant. He says, and really, we've got to have it out of here by Monday. And I said to him, well, to be honest, I goes, yeah, it's probably worth, you know, about £30,000, but only if you've got a client or whatever. So the guy said to me, um, Willie, if you can come and take it away and then you can try and find something to do with it later on, that's fine, he says, because we just need to get rid of it anyway. So I gave him £500. <laughs> £500. This <laughs> is 1990. 1990, I gave him £500. And uh, I sent a crane up and we lifted it and I brought it down to where my new building was and I put it at the side and I put a tarpaulin over it, right? It was a real eyesore. What are we going to do? I said, look, you need to think. I'll think somewhere to hide it, whatever we can do. Two weeks later, I got a phone call from Mr. Lees, right? right. To say, can you come out and uh, look at my factory in Coat Bridge? Um, it's too warm and we need to look at air conditioning. <laughs> right? And I went away out there and I looked at the factory and I thought, this is exactly what this place <laughs> needs. Right? So, please, please, more of you, please. Please Ollie. get your ACs from us. Right? <laughs> so, within weeks, installed the plant, the whole thing, and the money that we got for the job paid for the other building that I had just built. So I've got a lot to thank Lee's for, obviously for the size of my trousers <laughs> and also for helping size me your wallet. for paying the business. So there you go. So uh, Lee's love all the products. Brilliant. And isn't it funny... <laughs> what a that, great Scottish story. It's a great story. Isn't, isn't it funny that Tunnocks and Lee's, Tunnocks and Uddingston, Lee's and Coat Bridge... Side by side, Willie. Three miles. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Nicholas Muirhead, Joint Managing Director of the Scottish Leather Group. Don't forget, if you want to join the boardroom, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterHockey. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back as we turn the guest spotlight on Nicholas Muirhead, Joint Managing Director of the Scottish Leather Group. If you want free business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag Go Hunter and Hockey. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Hi there. I've got to ask you, you said you're a joint MD. Who with and how does that work? <laughs> Very good question. <laughs> um, the other managing director is a chap called David Archibald. 
And uh, when we restructured uh, Scottish Leather Group earlier in the year post-COVID, um, or during COVID more accurately, we took on the roles of Joint MD. We brought effectively five businesses together as one um, to form a new company and make us more dynamic and fit for the challenges ahead as we emerged out of Brexit and uh, out of COVID. Can you give us a bit about your background and also the history of the company? Because you're saying that you brought five organisations together. So just chat us through what the company's all about and your role with specifically within it. Well, Scottish Leather Group is still a wholly owned family business. The business is owned by predominantly the Muirhead and Lang families who came together back in 1965 where there was a number of businesses operating in the west of Scotland that were operated by the Lang and Muirhead families that felt that bringing themselves together would give them, you know, stronger, you know, better security in numbers and an ever-changing landscape. The original Muirhead family business, which my surname would... Um, indicates that descent from was established in 1840. Uh, that was Andrew Muirhead and Son Limited uh, and until very recently has been uh, headquartered in Dunn Street in the shadows of Celtic Park. So you may know it well, really. I think I've roved past it a few times. Yeah. Hopefully I haven't had to clean out the, your cans of tenants after a, a European night. No, we always take them with us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Andrew Muirhead business would have been the, the, the oldest in 1840. That's by my great-great-grandfather, Andrew. That makes me a, a seventh-generation Muirhead wow. operating in the business. Wow. Wow. We, we do have eighth. I have a cousin who's eighth-generation working in the business as well. So whilst we are family-owned, we're not family-run. We, we've got, we've got our, one of our greatest assets is our, our people. Um, we've got some fantastic people and multi-generational employees working in the business. I remember coming through school and when I used to get dropped at the factory on a Friday night waiting for my dad to finish and some of the forklift drivers would take you out and sitting on their knee, health and safety would have a fit these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, you get to know these guys and as I came through the factory 15 years ago when I started the business full-time from university, there'd be some of the ladies in the factory saying, oh, I remembered you, you when you were in your shorts and here after school and those people are still here and sometimes their daughters are there now and, you know, it's got a real kind of warmth to the business. Um, but through COVID and Brexit, we've merged Andrew Muirhead and Son, Bridge of Weir Leather, Lang, NCT and SLG Technology together as one company. So what, for, explain to the listeners, so what products and sectors do you serve? Predominantly, our, our largest sector we serve is the automotive uh, industry. Right. Uh, I'm supplying the likes of Jaguar Land Rover, Rolls-Royce, Bentley, Aston Martin, Lucid in California, Lincoln, McLaren, Morgan. Wow. Uh, Tom, these are all cars you've probably driven, is that? Yeah, so I, I, I've got them all. Yes, I've got them all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, I'm a, Tom. I'm a petrol head, yes. Yeah, yeah. Myself also. And then, but then on the aviation side, which is hugely fascinating, we've, you know, we've been involved in such prestigious projects like Concorde, for example, which oh, featured our wow. leather. Also, um, we currently supply the likes of everything from Ryanair through to Qatar, Emirates, Singapore, Malaysian. And so you must also supply the, the people who do the remote models of the private jets. Yes, yes, yeah. we do that. That's you know, it's less less of where the, the volume is for yes. us, but yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. we do that. Yeah. And but even and, and things going beyond aviation and automotive, you know, started doing work with uh, Mulberry, a business we're really proud of having developed. Um, also working in the trains, mass transit, 
in terms of with a full refurb for Irish Rail and also buses. And we've been very fortunate to be associated with a number of prestigious projects. And but there's some iconic projects in there. DeLorean, for yeah. example, is one that's wow. Wow. Rolls off the tongue. How, how do these come about? You're a Scottish-based company, yeah. but you're getting global contracts. It's relationships. I think we're, we're, we're excellent at you know, building those relationships and people do business with people they like. And I think our sales team and business development team are, are first class in that. You know, I've got a um, cousin and my, my younger brother that work in, in the sales side and they're you know, first class operators in that, in that regard. You can go anywhere in the world and they'll know someone. Contacts. Contacts everywhere. And and reputation then you deliver. You know, it's, it's not just about selling your product. It's then your product actually doing what it says it does. And it, you know, living up to those expectations. And then you get recommended. And then when people move in the automotive or aviation sectors, you know, they, they, they take that with, take you with them in many respects. So the, the place in uh, you've got here in, in Glasgow, is everything produced here or have you got places throughout? the country or the world? Well, our manufacturing footprint in, in Glasgow is based between, or the Glasgow area is between Bridge of Weir yeah. and Paisley. Paisley. Uh, um, and we, we procure all our raw material from the UK and Ireland. So currently we're, we're procuring in the region of 15,000 raw hides per week to process. Wow. Um, wow. And that's direct from abattoirs um, across the country. So we have a direct relationship with them, which is very important for us. Getting, and also having full traceability of our raw material. Um, and that's all processed on the Bridge of Weir site, from raw through to a finished piece of leather uh, as a hide. And then the Paisley site is cutting that leather into shapes. So how many do you employ now? How many people do you employ here in Scotland? Currently just over 850 people. Wow. Um, yeah. And we still have in excess of 100 vacancies at the moment um, that we're wow. you know, we're, we're really desperate to um, to fill just now, and that's across operational roles and office-based roles, from marketing, IT, finance, to skilled engineers, to... So give yourself a plug, tell people how they can get in touch if they're looking for a job. Absolutely, but please contact us through our website, scottishleathergroup.com, or hr at scottishleathergroup.com, yeah. and, you know, and also through our recognised agency partner, Allstaff and Paisley. So there you go, guys. There's a hundred mm-hmm. jobs out there, people, especially in the Paisley and Bridge of Weird area. Yeah, so so Nicholas, this is an amazing Scottish success story that I don't know too much about. You, <laughs> you've you've yeah. you've kind of kept yourself under the radar. Um, so was that a? Did you set out to be low key, or was it just not of any interest to the family? I think it is a conscious. It's been a conscious decision over the years not to be overly high profile. Um, Manufacturing leather has not always just been seen with you know too favourably. Um, however, we are hugely passionate how we operate. We operate hugely sustainably, and we produce the lowest carbon leather anywhere in the world. And we've proven yeah, that fantastic. Um, and it's about just actually getting on with the job in hand and servicing their customers. We do. We are more in a business to business rather than you know business yes. to consumer. So there isn't a huge amount of merit in terms of shouting from the rooftops about yeah. what we do. Um, however, you know, as I mentioned earlier, some of the projects we've worked on have been extraordinary. Sometimes you have to pinch oh, yourself looking back. Incredible. We're really, yeah. really yeah. involved in that. But yeah. even things that people see every day and they don't realise, the Houses of Parliament, House of Lords, House of Commons, <laughs> the green and red leather is our leather. Yeah. 
Um, or if so, you, Willie, you it's funny, I had a wee bit of that sticking into me last week. There was a wee, <laughs> there was a ridge, there was a ridge on the bench. <laughs> can, can I ask you this? I'm, in, I'm intrigued to find out uh, what was David's and your titles before you agreed to this joint, and how did that come about? You agreed that that's how you're going to run it. Fascinated. Ah. <laughs> well, talking about my own journey first, I joined the business um, 15 years ago. I joined as a, an engineer. Having said to my father, would never work in the business. Good lad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and came through through production supervision and through sort of commercial roles, and then took on one of the managing director roles at NCT and Lang uh, Leather, and then lastly uh, to Andrew Muirhead and Son in the East End. And when we looked to to bring the business together, David was managing director at Bridge of Weir. And when we brought the businesses together, it was felt that the business was growing exponentially in size almost overnight. And then we could um, almost divide and conquer a bit in terms of, you know, focusing in different areas of the business. And whilst being, you know, equally and jointly responsible for the success of the business on a day-to-day focus in slightly different areas. Right. So I see that working. That's what I do a wee bit. So you do that. You've got specific areas where you're the boss. There's not, there's not two of you trying to make decisions. No, but, we're, but if... If I'm travelling, yeah. you know, which I do more of than David, then David backfills Absolutely. or vice versa so that we're, yeah. we're seen as interchangeable but we don't cut each other's grass either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes who, sense. Who, who, Put who your tanks on his lawn. <laughs> <laughs> but who ultimately calls the shots then? And... and <laughs> Ultimately, David and I have to have to have to come to that. You know, so you both have N- to. Agree. Nicholas, he's not here. Come on, no. <laughs> no. you're the boss. Nicholas. Come on. <laughs> no, it, it, it depends on the areas of expertise. There's areas that David's strong on, and we just have to go, and we back each other to make those calls. Yeah. Where I feel I'm stronger, so come on, David. Whether it be on the sales or marketing or business development side, I might say no. Yeah. I'm dead certain this one. Whereas operationally or finance, David might say. No, Nick, I'll hold the trump cards on this right. one, perhaps. And what is David's background? David's an accountant to trade. and well, so We would definitely say an engineer should always trump an accountant, so <laughs> always use that card. Always use that card. So, yeah, David joined the business as a um, financial director at Bridge of Weir and then yeah. took over the managing director role there. Um, so. but what a fantastic company. Fantastic story, amazing. I never knew that. All the years... I seen Andrew Muirhead on the building on yep. the kind of chimney stack there. Absolutely. So now I know what the the business is about. I know absolutely. It's, yeah, and it's yeah, it's, we've got some great people. Yeah, uh, that that's what really makes it. You know, there's you know people that regularly you know we're recognising in a couple of weeks. You know, I think there's a dozen employees that have done twenty five years. Then we've got employees come up for forty years service. Wow. People as as like, Tom says, it's another you know, great success story that no one knows about, you know, so it's great, it's great to have you on and now people, thousands of people in Glasgow will be talking about Andrew Muirhead now and, and what it's all about, what it stands for. <laughs> well, your cover is now blown. Nick. Yes. You've been on the Go Radio business show. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> if I can just talk, Nicholas, about you as an individual, as a businessman, as a leader, what key characteristics or traits do you think have made you so successful? I think trying to be approachable always, um, as I think for your team, and I think um, and having the real humility. I think because we don't always get decisions right, and I won't get every decision right. But it's always be able to say, you know, take a step back and go, okay, how can I do this better? You know, re- really lean on your team. You know, you you have an, you have experts for a reason, and it's not to micromanage. It's not you know, it's it's to get the best out of them. That's why I actually feel like my my happiest when you see your team just clicking and you just think. 
It worked. It worked. It's brilliant. And you wanted to see them take the plaudits because it's not, it's not about me. It's about what they can achieve. What do you think has been your biggest business achievement personally so far? Well, it's actually one that's been um, fairly recently and it's fairly new. Um, just prior to COVID in late 2019, I was actually on my way to this place in deepest, darkest China. I travelled through Wuhan. I'm, I believe I'm not the case zero, I promise. <laughs> and uh, my, my colleague and I were travelling back from China and um, my sales director on the Muirhead brand side, um, which focuses on the aviation products. And China's fast becoming the fastest growing aviation market in the world. Um, they're building their own airline called Comac, which will rival Boeing and Airbus. It was, it's coming to Europe yes. soon. Um, they have established a, a seat manufacturer to rival the likes of Recaro. And Archie and I are saying, we've got to be doing more. We've got to take the hassle out of leather, as it was as it was said. And conversations evolved, but um, last month we commissioned our first cover manufacturing facility in China to create aviation seat covers from leather that's been cut, manufactured in Scotland, cut in Scotland and shipped to China to be assembled into a seat cover to service the Chinese aviation market. And we did that all the way through lockdown. Neither of us have been to China since. We've recruited a team We've set up a factory, we've got the machines, it's installed, it's commissioned and the first uh, covers and we've already got a customer for it in Spring Airlines in China. So that's early days, but I would say that what we've done in that period has been a real testament to the team. It's, it's great to hear that story. You're obviously doing the opposite of what everyone else is doing throughout the world by buying products from China, kidding, pretending to assemble them in Scotland, putting a Scottish badge on them. So, well, well done. Well done. <laughs> a fantastic success story. Um, when I'm talking about your key strengths, let's turn it in his head. What? How would, you know, David Archibald, your joint managing director, describe your strengths and how do you describe his strengths? How do you complement each other? Oh, I think David and I are a great match, to be honest. And I'm not just saying that. I think... Ah, come he's, on. He's not here. No, no. <laughs> you know, David's got a, a, um, a drive that's just extraordinary. You know, he just he gets, he's got a laser focus and he just... He, he goes and, and he's got this sort of is uh, capacity just to chew through work at a, like a, a rate of knots that I kind of look and think, where does he get the energy from? You know, he's 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 got that in abundance, and he just if it needs to happen, David will say, we'll make it happen. We'll make it happen, and you you just know you'll have it covered. Takes a note of it. You don't need to ask him. Is that covered off? It's been done, and so that that's that be David's uh, greatest greatest strength. Um, what would he see as your greatest strength, then, Nicholas? Seen different market opportunities, you know, maybe being a bit of an optimist, um, you know, stretching, maybe setting stretch targets, saying, come on, can we do this? How taking us maybe into new avenues where we haven't gone before, managing relationships. I like to think I'm, I'm, I'm fairly, fairly strong at that because we have very demanding customers all, all, all across a whole host of sectors. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think we manage them, we manage them well. Did you know you had those complementary skills before the appointment of you both as joint MDs or is it something that just blossomed? Uh, well, I don't think we knew before because when our, our board decided that was the direction they wanted to take in, in leading the group, I think we're probably both a bit kind of like, okay, joint MD, didn't see that one coming. But as we've 
got to know each other a bit better and we always always worked closely together as managing directors of companies within the group and we realise that we do complement each other and so it's been it's, it hasn't had to be forced because I was quite apprehensive going how is this going to work can, in reality can I, can I come in and ask you so if you both didn't see it coming who made that decision? Our, our, our main board right. our main board at the time um, led by our chairman Robbie Brown and uh, CEO Ian McFadgen so right. uh, so uh, as over all the group companies at that right. time and it was their their decision to say this is how we're going and to do take you still have a group CEO yes right uh, so Ian, Ian McFadgen so we, Dave and I report directly into right. him okay. and, and now sit on the main board alongside him right um, which which is good good structure so Nick Nick, how does it work with you being family and the person you report to not being family? Um, it works well in the sense that Ian's always got the shareholders. You know, you know, he's, he's passionate to things. He's loving shareholder value, but also he is. I could be doing a disservice here. He must be pushing forty years with the business. Maybe wow. not quite forty, right. but. Thirty-five, maybe. I'm, I'll get a, I'll get a slap probably when I go up the road. Um, but because Ian came through the business as well, that he's hugely passionate about, you know, the employees in the business and looking after them correctly. So Ian has that balance there, you know, because he because he's been with the business so long, he appreciates what what the shareholders are bringing in terms of a long term view. It's not out to be a fast buck. It's out to be here for generations to come. So the big question will be now understanding your structure completely. One day when Ian's maybe been 45 or 50 years with yeah. the business and it's time to go, uh, will his task and the board's task be then to pick one of the two or do you think that you'll both impress the board that much now that they may actually just run with the joint COOs or whatever you want to call. we can't call it joint CEOs no no absolutely. there is businesses out there with joint CEOs yes um, yeah so that's, that's to come that's yeah. to come um, I think just with the challenges we've got facing us just now it's hard to even look that far. it feels hard to look that far ahead and, yeah. and being honest it feels quite almost selfish and self-serving yeah. to be even thinking that think way about it. to think about it because yeah. you know I think when you walk in every day you've, you're responsible for the livelihoods of 850 Well, while people. you're sitting saying that, we can tell you, David's back at the ranch, right, having a chicken salad saying, I've set him up to fail. Everybody in the world will now know no, I'm better than him, so I'm a shoe in now for the sea. <laughs> Ian, if you're listening, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. <laughs> I'm sure so, you'll be so, a great success. Sorry, Tom, you wanted to come in. Yeah, so, Nicholas, I, I just, I've just loved hearing about this Scottish success Amazing. story. It's just, and it's one of Scotland's best kept secrets. But how important has it been to the family and the business to be based in Scotland? Oh, hugely important. Um, I think we're a very, you know, passionate family about being based. Our, our heritage is everything. In fact, that's a, a a big factor of why we do get sourced in these projects. They they like the fact that when they're speaking to those the sales directors or account managers that they're authentic you know they have a Scottish accent they they play golf they um, they know the local area um, and, but they're also passionate about cars or aviation and to offshore the business just as in a, in a consideration it wouldn't be the same business and yeah. I, I don't think it would work you know how can you have fine Scottish leather manufactured in, in China yeah. you know that's why the, the, the core manufacturing business has to be here yeah. Um, and yes, we have satellite operations and partners that do different parts of the process, but leather manufacturing 
is, is here in Scotland. So would you say Scotland's your competitive advantage, Nicholas? It's one of them. Well, it's a great Scottish success story. Thank you, Nicholas, for sharing that with us. After the break, we go into the boardroom where Tom and Willie answer your business questions and offer free, brilliant advice. If you want to take part, then simply email your questions to gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The board you can't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with free business advice, insight and inspiration. If you have any questions you want read out on the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. We're going to our phone lines now and first up is Gary Cooney from King Kong Digital. Welcome to the show, Gary. Hi, Donald. Thanks for having me on. Uh, tell us a wee bit about yourself and your business, because that's a very interesting name for it. Thanks very much. So, yeah, my name's Gar- Gary Cooney, Director of King Kong Digital. So, we run a digital marketing agency specialising in website design and lead generation. Um, we're about to launch a SaaS model. Um, so, we're looking to launch our own marketing and CRM software targeting SMEs. So my question to Tom and Willie is, when is a good time to take investment into your business from angel or VC investors early to fuel growth or later to retain more equity? How would you assess this in your business? Great question, Tom. So, hi, Gary. Um, Brilliant name for your business, first of all. I love that. Thanks, Um, Tom. So it's a terrific question. Now, it's, it's very hard to give specific advice on such a, a a big question. I would need to know your business a bit better. But whenever people are taking on investment, I really get them just to pause and think, right, why are you doing this? And what are you giving up by taking outside capital? Because, you know, money comes with strings attached. There's There's just no way people can take money into their business and things won't change. Everybody, every investor says, oh, no, just be the same. But the investor is doing it for a return and a prescribed piece of time. And you've all the awkward questions have got to be dealt with up front, Gary. So you need to ask yourself, right, why, do, why am I taking this investment and what am I giving up in order to do it? And then only you can really answer that question. But have the have the difficult questions before you sign on the dot. That's what I would say. How about you, Willie? Morning, Gary. Morning, Willie. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, I've got kind of idea how this works. I think this is kind of uh, there is a wee matrix, right? Although it's not very scientific, it's dead simple. If you are going to get VC money or outside investor money coming into business to grow your business. Try and calculate, just say, for instance, you're giving away 25% of your business, right? And your business was worth a pound, right? So that means now you're only got, your, your part is only going to be worth 75 pence. If you think, and by selling 25% of the business, no matter what happens to your business, that your part is way beyond 75 pence, then it's a good idea, right? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're definitely convinced that by 
uh, having some capital that you can definitely grow the business that is definitely going to grow the value don't look at it as, as if you were giving away a percentage of your business right always look at what the cash is and what the bottom line is and I think that you haven't given anything away so this is how I've always looked at um, you know VC money or investor I only ever done it once away back in the day uh, and I'd done it later in this cycle so no I'd done it after nine years uh, and then I bought it back, you know, uh, five years later. So that that would be my answer to that question. And and th- of the two, I think if you get it in earlier, it's better than getting it in later. Was that good That's advice a, for you, Gary? Excellent. Yeah, thanks very yeah. much, guys, for that. Yeah, it's obviously that, some of the thoughts I have been having. It's sometimes better to have a, a sort yeah. of smaller part, a larger pie, as though that adage yes. goes. So, yep, thanks very much. Counting the dollars and not in the percentage. And I think Tom Tom would be in a better position to, you know, to, to answer this than me. But I think generally when you look at getting an investment later, it's all about maybe you try to take a bit of money off the table you know, rather yeah. than try to grow the business in the early Days, but that that would be my advice. Excellent, I appreciate that. Yeah, so so I I think Gary Willie has put over very eloquently the arithmetic of it. Yeah. I'm probably going more towards the emotional part of it of yeah. bringing somebody in who wants to have a say. Mm-hmm. So how much of a say do they want for their money? Are they going to interfere? Are they going to are they going to muck up your culture? Are they going to add to your business? Is it good to have? you know, a critical friend alongside you with business experience. So all of those questions I would ask because the money's one thing and you can calculate it in percentages, but the emotional thing of having someone in your business, it can be really good and it can be really bad. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And that's a big point. That's a big point. So the difference between having what we would call a silent investor Right or a sleeping mm-hmm. partner, as against having one, someone who's active. And, and Tom would tell you, you will get people who want that type of investment. They want to be part of it. They may want to be on the board, might put a business. Trust me, no matter what percentage you give them, they will always try and have more power than they should have. <laughs> right, that's what happens. And that's why most of them don't work. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. Th- thanks for the heads up. Okay. <laughs> Appreciate yeah. it. All right, yeah. Gary, Best good luck. Good yeah. luck. Do good let luck. us thanks know how you go on. Thanks very much. Next up is Ali Thompson of Hay Legal. Welcome to the show, Ali. Hi there. Thank you so much for uh, taking my call. Uh, I'm delighted to be on. Thank you. No, that's great. What's your question for Tom and Willie? I'm involved in creating an online platform which aims to help lawyers be more entrepreneurial. And uh, I'd like to ask, uh, uh, what do you think of the legal sector in terms of being entrepreneurial and what could lawyers learn from other industries in the wider business world? Crikey, this could get us into some defamation <laughs> actions. Yeah. Uh, so I'm letting, yeah. I'll throw that one right over to Willie. Yeah, I think I'm a bit of expert on answering this one. Uh, morning, Ali. Hi there. Thanks, thanks, thanks for calling in. Thank you so much. Um, back in the day, I would have said to you, a lawyer and entrepreneur in one statement was a bit of an oxymoron, right? Yeah. But uh, there is, you know, in recent years now, you see a lot of legal practices actually have a CEO who's not a lawyer, you know, and, and they obviously they drive the business. Yeah. But I think, um, I think businesses actually could learn from lawyers. I think we could learn how to charge like them. I think that would be a good start. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think that... Um, Law firms uh, and small accounting companies have, have came 
much more out of the dark ages where it was just know that this was how we've done it for 50 years this is how we're going to continue to do it and I think a lot of law firms have got more entrepreneurial you know the marketing's better the, the service is better the services that they want to provide is broader you know yep. and, and I think that um, that going back and learning again the things we've been talking about earlier you know what, what, what the entrepreneurs do let's find out what happens at the Scottish Edge let's find out at the entrepreneurial hub how do they do it is it networking you know is it how they run their business how do they market I think that you know the, the bit of advice uh, if we're asking how can law firms be more entrepreneurial it will be to get more engaged with the kind of entrepreneurial society and I also think that's actually good for marketing as well you know, most of the guys involved in at the edge, the guys that were getting awarded the hundred and fifty grand, no one, sorry, one and a half million pound. You know, the other night mm. they would say that. Um, you know, I I think that that these are big opportunities, and it's certainly something where you guys could get closer to and learn a wee bit more about how you could be more entrepreneurial. What's your view then, Ali? How can law firms be more entrepreneurial? I think there is um, definitely scope for lawyers, perhaps looking out with um, what competitors are doing in the legal sector and learning more from other business environments. And I agree entirely about maybe taking up opportunities that are in a wider entrepreneurial network that's available to them and engaging there, uh, both for possibly sourcing funds, but also ideas and and network. Um, But really, I think one of my key interests is in other sectors which are able to uh, provide great customer experiences and see what they could learn there. Yeah, well, the only lawyer that I know is very entrepreneurial, Mark O'Dowd. You know, said so Mark is heavily looking at all the green issues, the plant, all the all of these things. So it's been very entrepreneurial, mm. and I think you know more companies taking that lead. I think it can only be good for the companies. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, good luck. Ali, you can keep in touch and let us know if you decide to, you know, whatever route you're going to go down to become more entrepreneurial. It would be interesting to hear. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for giving me that guidance. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Best of luck, Ali. Unfortunately, that's all we've time for this week. If you have any feedback or want to know more about how you can get involved, visit thisisgo.co.uk. And don't forget, you can put your business questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join us on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts.